Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Creedle. It's been two weeks since we last came to you with What a Week. We had a skip last week due to some scheduling conflicts. Andrew, I know you were traveling to a Catholic Imagination Conference, I think it was, uh, in Dallas, which, well, I guess, not really traveling. You live in Dallas, but, uh, but you had to go to that, and so it interrupted our normal recording time. I had some work meetings that I had to do. We're back on track now. It's been great, but I've missed our conversations. How are you, Andrew? Me too, Zach. Yeah, glad to be back together. The Catholic Literary Imagination Conference was uh, was here in Dallas this past weekend. It was this big production at the University of Dallas, uh, which is just a, a wonderful institution. And I really enjoyed being there. I met a lot of interesting people, people who are creating and um, commenting and doing all kinds of interesting stuff. Dana Joya was there, the great poet, uh, Catholic poet was there. And uh Jessica Hooten Wilson, who's been on your show, That's was right, there. Yeah. And Abigail Favalli was there, who was just on your show. I really, really enjoyed listening to her. Uh, and um, it was just a great time. Great fellowship and very encouraging. I, uh, I'm glad you mentioned Abigail. It reminds me to remind other people to go watch or listen to that interview. It's one of my favorite interviews that I've ever done. Abigail is absolutely brilliant. Her book, it's still sitting here on my desk, Andrew, The Genesis of Gender. Highly recommend. I think you picked up a copy since uh, since hearing her speak at the conference as well. Um, yeah, I mean, she's brilliant and she's talking about an issue that is becoming more and more important. As I shared with her, I think off off mic, I used to think that this all of this sort of gender confusion, gender ideology stuff was a sideshow that would pass with time. That it was really just a distraction from the core issues of the day. I think I was wrong. I will eat crow on that. I think this is becoming a really defining issue of our time. I think it is sowing confusion in the hearts and minds of so, so many young people. And I think to not speak up on this, not speak truth to people who are struggling with issues of identity really is a disservice to them. It is certainly not an act of love. And so I'm really glad that Abigail took the time to come on. I'm glad glad she took the time to, to write that book. And I highly, highly recommend it. Uh, and I just in general encourage people always, of course, with love, always making sure that love for the human person is fully uh, and clearly communicated, but always be be uh, unashamed to speak the truth um, and to, st to stand up for what what is true. Uh, and we, we need to do that because there's so much confusion today. Uh, and so I'm really grateful to Abigail for for doing that in a way that's very, very charitable, charitable overall. Yeah, she has quite a way of expressing herself as well. She, she speaks with a great deal of... Um, you know, she's self, she's sort of self-effacing, but she's very confident in what she says. Yeah. She's she's charming, she's charitable, and she's brilliant. I mean, she just knows her stuff. She knows what she's yeah. talking about. And I really didn't know anything about her until I I mean, I knew that this book had come out and that people had been commenting on it and and that sort of thing. But I really, really enjoyed hearing her speak. And of all of the events that that took place at this uh, at this conference. Um, everything was very well attended, but this particular session was just packed. I mean, it, it clearly is something people are interested in. They want to hear clear voices. Uh, they want to hear informed, sophisticated, accessible perspectives on this issue because it affects us all. Uh, and really, like, as you say, it's just not, it's not a sideline issue. It's not on the fringes. I mean, it really touches on the very, the very core of reality, namely, what does it mean to be a human being? Yeah. That's exactly right. Well, I'm glad you got to hear her at the conference. Really glad that she joined me for the, the interview. Um, I've got a more important question. Well, not more important. I've got an important question for you today, Andrew, that I thought we could kick off with. You know, you've been reading a lot on Europe, uh, even behind you there. I see Ian Kershaw's The Global Age. I yep. see a, a number of books on Europe behind you. I know you've been reading many of them for a book project, actually two book projects, two book projects that you're working on. So my question for you that has to do with Europe is... Who blew up the Nord Stream pipeline? Oh That's my the goodness! <laughs> it's a mystery, isn't it? It is a mystery. I mean, on the one hand, it makes no sense whatsoever that Russia would do it. On the other hand, maybe it's one of these four-dimensional chess things, or, or maybe it's just something so bonkers that it has to be. I I just don't know. I know that uh, there there are hot takes uh, about this, but it is really remarkable. This is something I've, I've really been discovering the more I've been. You know, I've always been interested in Europe. I studied French and German and I, 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 you know, like you lived in England and I've been to Europe and I've just always kind of considered myself a Europhile. Um, and I try to keep up a little bit with European news, but since I've been involved particularly in this one book project about European cinema, 
I've been trying to keep up with kind of a little bit more about the European news and listening to some podcasts that are coming out of Europe and that sort of thing. And one of the things that's really interesting is this Nord Stream pipeline thing is is one of many news stories that I have encountered just in the last several months or, or year that is huge in Europe. I mean, it's absolutely front page news. Yes. It is the defining story. And it is something that barely barely registers in the United States. I mean, unless you're one of these like sort of, you know, foreign policy people, and and obviously it touches on the whole Ukraine war, but don't you think most Americans have pretty much started ignoring that too, except when maybe hot button things come up about whether Putin is going to use his, you know, weapons of mass destruction or something. So anyway, I don't know. I don't know. Who do you think blew it up? Well, uh, before I comment on that, let me just respond in general to what you're saying. Yes, this is absolutely front page news and rightly so across all of Europe. Europe is in the midst of its worst energy crisis since probably World War II. And people in America are very insulated from that. For us in America, an energy crisis is high prices at the gas pump. For Europe, it's not only high prices at the gas pump. And of course, they are astronomically high, even more than they normally are in Europe but it's also drastically high energy bills to heat your home. And I'm not talking about going from $100 or pounds or euros or whatever to, you know, 120. I'm talking about, you know, 3x, 4x what you normally pay. I'm talking about state mandates to not have your thermostat above a certain a certain level in the winter or below a certain level in the summer. Huge, huge uh, crises of energy. Uh, I'm talking about electricity. I'm talking about, you know, rolling blackouts, mandated blackouts, et cetera. Uh, so this is this is definitely front page news in Europe and people there are talking about it nonstop here in America. I think you you talk to the average person on the street. Um, people would not know what the Nord Stream one pipeline was, much less that it was it was blown up in an almost certain act of sabotage uh, in the past week. So this is a remarkable story. And it's really impressive that not not more people in America are talking about it for one. I think you rightly point out that just like Ukraine, it, these things sort of enter the American consciousness and then leave the American consciousness as soon as there is another issue on the horizon. Like, for example, Hurricane Ian, right? Here's the Nord Stream 1, the energy crisis stuff. We can sort of fill front page news with that. But now we're going to talk about Hurricane Ian. Now we're going to talk about, you know, this Georgia Senate candidate who may have who, who says he's pro-life and might have paid for a, a girlfriend's abortion um, in 2009 or whatever. Uh, that's Herschel Walker. Uh, which just as a as a as a side note, I think it's absolutely a valid line of inquiry for a journalist to make, by the way. I'm not suggesting that. I'm just saying that we sort of just like go from one one sort of crisis du jour to the next and we we leave everything else in the rearview mirror mm-hmm. uh, on the Ukraine front. too. I mean, this is why it was it was very. Uh, when the Ukraine war kicked off this spring, it was very fashionable to to include a Ukraine flag in your Twitter bio, Twitter avatar, whatever Twitter picture, you know, to say that you stand with Ukraine. The hashtag I stand with Ukraine was trending. And it was all just very it reminds me of the uh, the I think 2012 when the African warlord Joseph Kony was running around Africa and there was a concerted social media campaign to find and capture him. Uh, Kony 2012 was trending. Uh, and <laughs> the same thing with, uh, uh, I think a few years later, Boko Haram, the terrorist group in Northern Nigeria kidnapped something like 50 girls from an orphanage or a school, uh, presumably to turn them into child brides and, you know, not return them or hold them for ransom. And so Michelle Obama at the time, the first lady of the United States was, uh, she started the hashtag bring back our girls, you know, and all of these things just ring so hollow to me. It's just like, oh, yeah, the African warlord or the uh, the Nigerian terrorist group or Vladimir Putin is really going to care what you're saying on social media. And not only that, you're going to forget about this as soon as the next cause du jour comes along. So all those all those sort of um, attempts to hop on the bandwagon always ring hollow with me. And for that reason, I never once tweeted, I stand with Ukraine, because all you have to do to find out my position on Ukraine is talk to me. And I don't need to sort of broadcast this to the world. At the same time, though, that people are sort of so eager to broadcast their opinions to the world, they're just they're just ignorant. And so um, there are there are so many people wildly speculating or talking about what we need to do to avoid nuclear war, to avoid nuclear winter, how we need to do this or do that to push back against a nuclear armed Putin in Ukraine. Uh, and they had just have no idea what they're talking about. And I think this Nord Stream one thing is a good example of this. Uh, I don't know who did it. I think the circumstances of the almost certain sabotage are really remarkable. I think the best place to go for analysis of this sort of thing is European news. I would not go to CNN. I would not go to Fox. I would go to something like uh, Der Spiegel in uh, Germany. And I have a link. I will include this in the show notes. I have a link um, to an article here called 
attacks expose vulnerability of European infrastructure. Now, in the U.S. press, it's been fairly verboten to suggest that the U.S. could have possibly been behind an attack on the Nord Stream pipeline, right? Uh, or as uh, the, the White House press, press secretary called in a slip of the tongue, the Nordstrom pipeline, um, you know, the pipeline that Nordstrom uses to get all its textiles to the U.S. Um, I'm kidding. People were roasting her for that. I think I make slips, slips of the tongue all the time on the podcast, multiple times a podcast. So I am not criticizing her for that. I just thought it was funny. But this article is all about the Nord Stream attack. And the interesting thing that I found in this article, Andrew, uh, again, I don't have an opinion, uh, an official position or opinion on who did the attack. But the, the thing that I thought was interesting is that Der Spiegel analyzes these options. For example, reading directly from this. But what is the story behind those images? Has Russia really opened up a new front? Did the United States, as immediately discussed by many voices on Twitter and other social media platforms, finally drive a stake in the heart of a pipeline project that is that it has always strongly opposed? Are Ukrainian forces involved? Is it conceivable that rogue units were at work, out-of-control intelligence agencies that wanted to write history on their own? Or was it, as is often reflexively whispered in conspiracy theorist circles when it comes to processing unexpected and perplexing developments, Israelis Mossad? <laughs> um, I think they, yeah, and they really should have said is Israel's Mossad. I think it's a typo, actually. But hmm. um, then they say, at the moment, there is not yet any evidence, neither concrete nor substantial, to back any specific version of events. Uh, they do so. They do say, though, that, you know, certainly the Russia one looks more uh, more viable than the Mossad one, which I certainly agree with. But they, hmm. I think, adequately explore um, these ideas and admit that, yeah, it's actually not really clear. And there are, I would add, plausible motives for either side to have done that or even the ukrainians um you know i think it was probably the russians uh it is it is a little bit harder to sort of piece together the motives for that and i think the motive a chain that's put together in this der spiegel article is a little bit hard to follow and perhaps a bit tenuous um, but it is also it's hard for me to imagine that the united states under complete secrecy uh would also blow up the Stream pipeline so uh i find all scenarios far-fetched i find the russia scenario probably the least far-fetched um although I still have still have more research to do. But I do think we should be talking about this more and we should get to the bottom of this because this is immensely important for a huge uh, subset of the world's population, all of our Western European friends. It is weird, isn't it, that it does seem in the American press that before stories are even really reported, there is a kind of way of excluding a whole a whole line of questioning. You know, we saw this so many times, not to get all controversial, but we saw this so often in, during the COVID pandemic, right? I mean- um, Andrew, that, we've got to get controversial. Come on, let's do right. it. Right. I mean, just, but just, just over there. and over again, I mean, even asking questions or suggesting something, but yes. I mean, there's so many people, right, who got banned from social media platforms for yes. suggesting things that are now just basically matter of fact, Yeah. Um, you know, or, or at the very least are things that are worth talking about or wondering about or exploring. Um, I think one of my favorite examples of that, by the way, is the whole- uh, is the whole question about the the monetary and financial incentives of vaccine manufacturers to have mass vaccination campaigns? Yeah. To to mention that or to ask questions about that was to become a conspiracy theorist anti-vaxer, which was a completely absurd label if you just think yeah. about it, because it is now it is now clear beyond a shadow of a doubt that people at the top of those companies like Pfizer and Moderna stood to gain an enormous amount of personal wealth from having a product that was very quick to market especially first to market and had the quick rapid authorization from every single world government so that they could drive massive vaccination uh, campaigns in the states. Now, independent of whether or not the vaccine is safe and effective, et cetera, et cetera, that is a totally valid question to ask. Who stands right. to gain from the administrative technocracy that's approving this and driving these max massive vaccination campaigns? But to even say that was, a, oh my goodness, how can you, how can you do that? You're an anti-vaxxer, you're a conspiracy theorist, you need to be banned. Right. And, and, and in the States, it's so tied to like the, the binary of right wing and left wing and Democrats and Republicans and stuff as well. You know, it's like to even suggest like one thing may not be related to something else is to sort of say, well, you buy into some whole political party's agenda or something like that, which is, which is really strange. And I think this is the case with the, with the pipeline, right? I mean, there's, you know, um, some right wing journalists have grabbed, sound bites of Joe Biden and other members of his administration talking about how the pipeline would come to an end if uh, if Putin invaded Ukraine and they sort of adduce that as the evidence that surely we then must have blown up this must have blown up this pipeline well maybe we did I don't know but um, you know it, it certainly 
a lot more complicated than that. A lot. I mean, at any rate, there are all kinds of different avenues to explore. And I totally agree with you that the European media, they have their flaws too. But I think that on the whole, they tend to do that more. They tend, like in the more reputable sources, um, tend to just sort of lay out different possibilities. One final thing to mention to you before we go into our misinformation section. I was talking to a friend today about film, and this is a this is a topic that you and I have discussed, you know, for hours and hours collectively. But uh, the discussion was basically how uh, people don't make good films anymore. It's it's very hard to find good films that constitute good art. Um, what we have are sort of like the the sort of milk toast, um, the milk toast ridiculous productions of what is a leftist dominated Hollywood, and now we have this interesting sort of counterproduction. Uh, of things uh, that are being made on the political right, but it's the same sort of like milk toast, you know, vanilla stuff that's just now sort of wrapped up in like politically conservative uh, clothing. And so his wording that I loved was we need to escape the sort of left right thing and we need to pursue an up down, right? So the, all the bad stuff is the down stuff that sort of pulls our gaze earthward. All the good stuff is the up stuff that pulls our gaze heavenward, transcend, you know, to, to something transcendent, beauty beyond ourselves. Um, and so he said, let's escape the left, right. Let's go to the up, down. And I think that's a really good sort of heuristic for thinking about how to create content and, uh, and how to think about the world, how to make beautiful things. I agree. Cool. You ready for some misinformation? I am. I'm afraid that this is going to be too easy for you. I think I just went, I think I just went a little bit too easy, um, uh, today, Andrew, it's been a busy week. Didn't have as much time as I wanted to dive into some, you know, real and fake articles. So I did my best, but we'll see. I have that's a okay. I could use to... a W. I could use okay. a W today. All so right. let, let's do it. Have a feeling you're going to crush it. All right, let's okay. go with this. The first article, if true, comes from the Wall Street Journal. And it is this. Let me just read an excerpt. Mike Wallace has spent months scouring thousands of photos of a forest in Gresham, Oregon, looking for clues to a mystery that has bedeviled the Portland suburb for more than a year. Who is the serial killer? The natural resources ecologist is hunting a criminal whom locals have nicknamed the Gresham Lumberjack. Mr. Wallace estimates that someone has cut down more than 700 trees near a popular walking trail for no apparent reason, creating dangers for hikers and setting back years of restoration efforts. So this serial killer is not a serial killer of humans, mercifully, but a serial killer of trees. On the loose in Oregon, no one knows who he is. It is a mystery. Okay. That is story one. All right. Okay. Story two. From the New Statesman, if true. In the New Statesman, author Sophie Lewis advertises her new book called Abolish the Family, a manifesto for care and liberation, in which she argues that the family, the modern nuclear family, must be abolished. She argues that we need to imagine the unimaginable if we want to transform the world. And she says, how do we begin? We must first exchange the loneliness of our own private kitchens for cooking with our friends and then see what happens next. All right, that's item two. Okay. All right, and finally, item three, if true, directly from the Globe Theater Twitter account. Now recall, in a previous discussion, previous misinformation segment, I talked about a Joan of Arc play that we put on by the Globe Theater in which Joan of Arc would be portrayed as a non-binary character, right? Yes. Well, this is kind of a follow-up to that misinformation story, which as you'll recall, of course, was true, right? So the question is, is this true? Follow-up to that story, the Globe Theater, the Globe Theater posted to their Twitter account a video of a monologue from the segment in which Joan of Arc is speaking. And she says, trans people are sacred. We are the divine. And we are practicing our divinity by expressing authenticity, by enjoying our multiplicity, elevating our humanity, finding the unity hidden inside community. Remember our collective connectivity fuels courageous creative creativity. All right, that's item three. Okay. Okay. So let me just clarify item three then. So this is something that Joan says in the play, in the context of this play about her or... Uh, unclear from the clip unclear that I saw. Unclear from the context. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, unclear All right. from the context, yeah. All right. But it. But the if true, then mm -hmm. uh, I would describe the video as showing Joan of Arc uh, on stage giving what looks like a performance to a crowd of onlookers as she says that sort of slam poetry about nothing. 
Okay. Yeah. All right. I'm going to say, let's start with that one then. I'm going to say that that one's true. It, it may not be, but I'm going to say it's true because it, it allows me to say something that I've been thinking about more and more, which is I think we're pretty close now in screenplays, in the, you know, a lot of the popular entertainment that we have. I think we're pretty close to changing the convention where we break the fourth wall all the time and the characters just flat out say this this part of the show is designed to demonstrate female empowerment or or mm. whatever you know whatever whatever it may be yeah. right because it the 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 dialogue is so bad in so many of the new things that they've just about hit that so yeah. i'm going to say number 3 is true i'm going to say number 3 is true because i can imagine somebody standing on a stage and doing that kind of a thing that is correct. It was uh, just quite a sight to behold, I will say. I will send you the link afterward, and I okay. will try to remember to include it in the show notes. Very remarkable. Uh, and just just bad bad poetry. I mean, I don't know what your opinion is on slam poetry, Andrew. I think it's an abomination uh, yeah. and uh, has no place uh, outside of, like, you know, I don't know, bar halls. Yeah. Um, slam poetry is on a level of karaoke. Like, it's fine if you want to do it with your friends and can be a fun social thing if you want to do that. Uh, but nobody else wants to hear it. You know what I mean? That's kind of how I feel about slam poetry. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that leaves me with one and two. Okay. I will say two sounds plausible. Um, It seems like if, uh, if you made that one up, it's only because it's very much like the kind of book that could be out there. So I'll say that book is real. I think that the, I think that the, the detail about just like, I, I gather what's implied at the end of what you read was that instead of like standing around being lonely, like wanting a family, like, you know, just cook with your friend instead. And then you don't even have to have a family. It's totally fine. Um, so which seems like the kind of thing that somebody would say nowadays. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to say I'm going to say that's true. And then I'm going to say number one is false. I, I think that was a valiant, a valiant effort, but I don't think they are calling somebody who chops down trees a serial killer quite yet maybe okay so uh i'm gonna give you i'm gonna give you a a a passing score on this andrew because this is where my sort of my sort of laziness comes into play here uh my lack of time to repair so the wall street journal story is in fact true Ah. um however i did i made it a little little more sensational when i was reading it and the 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 first paragraph the lead ends with this the question who is the serial tree killer not Ah. serial killer so ah. I read it slightly more dramatically. Uh, I apologize for misleading you. It is, however, a very real story from the Wall Street Journal. Everything else I read was word for word, but the first the per- first paragraph ends with serial tree killer. Oh, um, maybe I misheard you. Uh, no, I definitely said the serial okay. killer. Serial I, yeah, killer. I definitely. Okay. I was I was trying to be a little sensational. So yeah. Okay. Uh, trying to throw <laughs> okay. me off. Okay. So, but that is a true story. But I, you know, points for um, points for identifying my sensationalism. Okay. The second one is. Um, the way I describe it is false, but it is sort of true in essence. There is a real book. There is a new book by Sophie Lewis called Abolish the Family, a Manifesto for Care and Liberation. It is a only it is only 128 pages because, of course, like how robust can an argument like that be? Right. Uh, but the, but she did not write in the New Statesman advocating for this. What the New States what the New Statesman published. There I go tripping over my words like like the press secretary. This is why I don't I, I don't point fingers. What the New Statesman published was a review of this by a writer named Aaron McGlack. And Aaron seems to be writing a relatively sympathetic review of this piece. And she does summarize, not necessarily advocate, but summarizes at the end by saying that both feminist and abolitionist politics, abolitionist here, it used to mean, Andrew, that you were against slavery and wanted every human being to have free and equal rights. Now it actually means you want to abolish the family, I guess, in this context. So she says, both feminist and abolitionist politics ask us to imagine the unimaginable, to transform the world, as the philosopher Amiya Srinivasan has written, quote, beyond recognition, end quote. A daunting task, writes Aaron McGluck. Easier, perhaps, to begin on a domestic scale, easier to begin by exchanging the loneliness of our own private kitchens for cooking with our friends and then see what happens next. So largely true. Uh, and she seems to be, as I mentioned, writing a pretty sympathetic account. Uh, but Sophie herself did not write it. Uh, so it wasn't quite the forceful advocacy piece that I described. So with that, I think you I think you have a passing score, Andrew, because uh, you, you you basically you've got you got the gist right, despite my my subtle manipulations. Well, those are good ones. Thank you. I enjoyed You're it. You're welcome. Are we ready for our close read? Let's do it. 
All right, we have something different for today for the close read section. We're actually going to be looking at two different pieces, both of which have to do with very similar ideas. One is from Barry Weiss's Common Sense, uh, and actually written by Barry's sister, Susie Weiss, and the other written by uh, critic Freddie DeBoer at his own Substack. They both have to do with a culture, an internet culture that sort of encourages people to be sick. Susie Weiss's piece is called Hurts So Good. Subtitle, Why Are So Many Young Women Suffering from Invisible Illnesses? Meet the Girls in a World of Pain. And the Freddie DeBoer piece is more particularly focused on mental health. And the title is, We Can't Constructively Address Online Mental Health Culture Without Acknowledging That Some People Think They Have Disorders They Don't. Subtitle, They're Hurting Just in Different Ways. Uh, Andrew, we did not uh, plan this previously, but do you feel prepared to offer a brief summary of one of the other pieces? Sure. Well, let's start with, um, let me, let me start with the uh, Weiss piece then. Sure. Um, because the Weiss piece called Hurt So Good described something I had never heard of before. And I, I really, I, I really think uh, the scales have dropped from my eyes in a way in, in um, just the way that I, I can now look out on the world, especially the, the problems that are facing young women. Um, Susie Weiss here talks about this community, this online community called the Spoonies, which I had never heard about before. And the Spoonies are apparently um, a group largely of young women who suffer from or who believe that who believe that they suffer from various chronic illnesses. And the the Spoonie term refers to what the way that they think about their ability to cope with the everyday tasks of the world, that normal people, they say, um, healthy people have an unlimited number of spoons. So each task that we have to do, we can just do that and then move on to the next one and the next one and the next one. But for them, they have to think in terms of how many kind of discrete activities can they accomplish in a day before basically their bodies just won't allow them to continue. So they think of like taking a shower as one spoon, um, going to the grocery store is two spoons, maybe going to work is four or five spoons or something like that. So there's this whole spoony community. And I admit that I, I looked around on YouTube a little bit to see if I could find some of these videos because the, the article alludes to, or, or more than alludes, I mean, really goes into detail about a lot of these videos that members of this community watch. But I didn't find a lot on YouTube. And I looked back at the article and I realized, where is this happening? On TikTok and on Instagram that there are the, the, these large communities of young women who basically peer into each other's lives and kind of commiserate with each other about their illnesses or their putative illnesses. But in a way, what all of this serves to achieve is to, um, it, it is to kind of, um, rather than, you know, kind of empower women who believe they're in pain or who aren't very much in pain, empowering them to kind of like, you know, kind of fight through it or to seek, you know, to seek kind of sensible solutions, either through kind of medication or through other things that they, they may be able to pursue, it ends up kind of creating a community of reinforcing each other's illness, and in a way kind of fetishizing it, and allowing these, these women to kind of create an identity for themselves, akin to the kind of thing that we see playing out in so many other ways through social media, whether it's kind of the meteoric rise of, uh, of gender dysphoria, or, you know, all kinds of other things besides. I mean, there's there's almost as many different ways to construct yourself online as there are people to do the constructing. And actually, that's one of the things that the Deborah piece gets into a little bit. But um, I really I really liked Weiss's piece. I mean, it gets into uh, real people's stories, and particularly this one young woman, Morgan Cooper, who was struggling with various kind of unknown things. I mean, she had a couple of different diagnoses, but... Um, Basically, she needed to gain a bunch of weight in order to get a surgery that would have um, perhaps remedied one of the problems that she had. And she found that she wasn't able to gain the weight, that it, in fact, that she was self-conscious about that because um, the community, in a sense, kind of um, rewards people who don't get better, who, who are kind of able to you know, maintain their position in this, in this weird space. Um, that includes things like, had you ever heard this before, pill porn? Had you ever heard this expression before? I had not, no. I thought this was really fascinating. I mean, people who who um, 
are able to get diagnoses and be prescribed medication kind of show off to each other the number of pills that they take. And this and this one young woman talked about how she would kind of pad the the numbers by including various over-the-counter things or just things that she had on hand so that it would look a little bit more um, provocative that she was taking more medications than she actually was. Um, you know, so it, it sort of goes on from there and it follows this young woman's story in particular all the way to the end where her family ended up having to take her phone out of her possession so that she couldn't participate any longer in this in this community. And she ended up experiencing marked improvement, marked improvement in her health and, and in her mental amazing. health in particular. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. It really is. And And it came to the point where when she was in a much better place, she got her phone back and just deleted her Instagram account just like that. Um, just almost kind of breaking the spell that it had had over her. Um, one further thing that I'll say about this is, um, you know, th this whole phenomenon plays very much into the idea, um, you know, Weiss mentions the Me Too movement and a couple of other things, um, which are important things. But, you know, she talks about how this, this spoony community and others like them have ended up kind of creating a an impenetrable um, fortress around themselves where you can't critique them. You can't, in a sense, like just even ask basic questions like, Hey, what if maybe what you're going through is something, is something a little different, or maybe, you know, right. maybe, maybe you're not, maybe this isn't that or something like that because right. It's sort of this don't question mentality. Like if you question my reality, my truth, you know, my, my definition of myself, then you're not an ally, you're an enemy and I don't have time for you. That kind of a thing. Um, and because these illnesses are, she, she mentions here, are often these like invisible types, in a way, it's kind of the perfect foil, you know, because you're able to say like, I'm in pain and only I can, only I know that, but you have to accept this. You have to accept this reality about me. One last thing that I'll say that I thought was really interesting is Weiss points out that this community uses zebra emojis in their, um, in their uh, social media profiles. And I actually have seen that now and again, and, and I hadn't ever thought about what this means before, but what it means apparently is that in the medical community, there's this adage which says, when you hear hoofbeats, look for horses, not zebras, which is a way of saying, it's usually kind of the more common explanations for things that, that make sense, or that, you know, it's the person who's, who's sitting there in front of you probably has something more common than something less common, right? But this whole community, identify as that zebra, as the, the, the person who's not like everybody else. And strangely, it's because of that, that they then find this community with all of these other zebras, in a sense. So it's very depressing stuff. It's, it's weird stuff. It, um, it, like I said, a light bulb kind of went off for me with this piece, thinking about a lot of these issues that we're, that we're talking about, even the stuff going back to the, the, um, Abigail Favali's work that, we have we have this whole generation of young men who watch pornography and sit in their parents' basements and play video games, and they have this sort of bizarre um, kind of self construction. But we have maybe in among women this kind of self construction, which is rooted in something totally different, in this sort of almost like indulgence in in their vulnerability. So that's my that's my take on the on the wise piece. Um, I don't know what your further thoughts are. Yeah, no, I think that's all absolutely accurate. And I, I thought that was a good summary. And some of the same parts that jumped out at you jumped out at me as well. I have a couple comments and then I can give a little summary of the Freddie DeBoer piece because there are a lot of points of intersection here. First, without, without you know, sort of calling out any particular person, uh, and I don't mean by name, I just mean that I'm not like making any judgments about, about a particular person, period, because there are genuine illnesses, there are genuine ailments, et cetera. It's not that everything is psychosomatic. Yeah. This this piece did help me understand um, some of the people who I think maybe have sort of brushed, brushed up against this culture or sort of run in this culture a little bit um, and how there is a very powerful pull, uh, both born of a need to be sort of individualized and expressive and sort of be unique, but also to belong to something. And I think this also helps us make sense of of going back to the folly conversation, the the trans issue. Um, there are a lot of aspects of gender dysphoria today. It's really undeniable the the numbers of of teen gender dysphoria um, that we see today compared to even two years compared to last year, let alone like five years ago. It's undeniable that there is a social contagion aspect to what's going on here. 
And I think personally that a lot of it can be explained by one, uh, young people's desires to be loved, uh, to feel like if they are the same as everyone else, they will not stand out from the crowd. They will not be unique enough to sort of merit love from another human being. So a desire to be loved, but also a desire to belong, to, to be, to have some sort of tribe, you know, to have some sort of group of people that you can say, I may be different from a lot of people, but these are my people and I'm, I'm like them. And so a lot of the, um, just a lot of even the, the messaging that I see, uh, on social media from the, the LGBTQ community, but especially the trans community, um, is people sort of hitting on those buttons that this is, this is my tribe. This is my community. This is how I identify. And this makes me different. I'm non-binary particularly because I don't want to identify with these sort of pre-established categories. And so in an analogous way, analogous way, uh, I think this, this same sort of mode of thought might apply to this sort of spoony community as well, because we have people who are experiencing something, uh, and it's a subjective set of experiences that no doctor can fully account for. Um, and yet there's this community online that has very parallel experiences, if not identical experiences. And so there's this combination of like, I'm unique. I'm a zebra. My doctor can't even account for my medical conditions, but these people here, these people get me. This is, this is my tribe. And I think, uh, like you said, there's this sort of like indulgence in your own vulnerability. Um, now it is an interesting question as to why this is particularly demonstrated in young women. Um, and it may be because of sort of, yeah, maybe because of the vulnerability aspect that you mentioned, it may be because women are just better at relationships and sort of gravitate towards these sort of like online communities. Um, and maybe because the the real cases of these illnesses are more prevalent in women, like multiple sclerosis, for example. And so um, you have sort of like a higher baseline level of the population that actually has these real illnesses. And then you have more sort of their their friends and their social social circle that get pulled into this. Um, and I think that that raises a lot of interesting, interesting questions about um, uh, about sort of how the medical community should diagnose this. Obviously, it goes without saying that you and I are not psychologists or MDs, uh, Andrew. So it's not that it's not that you know we can come up with uh, solutions to this problem now. But I do think it's really, really sad to see this type of of uh, phenomenon affecting the lives of so many young people. And as a father, it makes me think my kids just never going to get a phone. Like we're just never going to we're never going to do smartphones ever because if it's going to lead, if there's even a fraction of a chance that it will lead to this type of outcome, I don't want that for my kid. So we're just not going to do it. Um, the Freddie the Boer piece parallels this interestingly, and I think he's 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 really really good and really really careful to say I am not denying the existence of any mental disorder whatsoever, and I like I tried to say earlier, am not pointing at any specific person and saying your disorder is not a real disorder, but I'm saying that not every claim disorder can be an actual disorder. I don't want I don't want sort of unreasonable scrutiny applied to any one person's claim of mental disorder. But I want reasonable scrutiny applied to everyone's claim of mental disorder because we can't just have people who say I need special treatment and I need this for this disorder. We can't have a, a sort of whole community of people self-diagnosing. We need to have trained professionals do this uh, and we need to carefully proceed because um, there are certainly cases of, as he says, you know, hypochondria, Munchausen syndrome, uh, these things where um, there is a psychosomatic component at the very least if not a totally imagined component to a disorder. And someone instead falls under the impression that they have this disorder. And then that leads to a whole host of things down the line. I can't do this because I have this disorder, this disorder and they don't have, actually have that disorder in the first place at all. So I thought his piece was really good in just sort of asking the questions about that. Um, and he was talking about how as a society, we, uh, hold on one second. Sorry, I had to, had to cough. Um, as a society, we have a bunch of people who want to want to receive special treatment. But he said at a certain point we have, uh, you know, we have the, the number of conditions that sort of demand special treatment starts to quickly approach 100%. And we cannot have a functioning society in which 100% of people need this sort of special treatment. It just doesn't work. Um, because at that point it's not special treatment at the very least. It's, it's just, it, it comes around if everyone's getting special treatment, then there is no such thing as special treatment anymore. So he raises some interesting questions about this as well. Um, and those are some of my initial thoughts, Andrew. Yeah, a couple of thoughts back. Um, one, I really liked how Freddie commented on what he called the elegance of the definition of disability from the Americans with Disability Act, um, which is that it is um, it that accommodations should be reasonable but not 
everything that is conceivable. And he makes the point that like, obviously a blind person needs, you know, this is such a good point. Yeah. Yeah. Like certain accommodations out in the world, right. To be sure that that person can, can walk on streets and, you know, or that, you know, whatever, but obviously it is not reasonable for a blind person to be allowed to fly an airplane. Right. And, you know, I, I think like he's, he's just kind of encouraging us to think like, okay, well, if we are going to treat people as, as disabled, well, it has to be, as you said before, it has to be reasonable. And um, what we're what we're approaching quickly is is a pretty unreasonable situation. Um, moreover, what we are approaching, especially with regard to young people, this touches on what we were just talking about before, both with the spoonies and with the gender dysphoria, is people who really are. Um, People who really are too young to be freezing their identity in amber right now, um, who want to be seen, but he points out here, he says, young people understand the allure of being seen. They don't yet understand the horror of being frozen in other people's gazes. This to me is such an important point. It's like, you know, if, if young people are essentially going to try to kind of perform their mental disorder online, then they have to be prepared to live with the repercussions, which are namely that that's the way the world will perceive them, you know, and young people do all kinds of stupid things. I mean, we young people try out all kinds of different stuff. Yeah, like we all did related to our identity. I mean, I am so thankful to God that I was not able to broadcast any of that really on the internet, because it didn't really exist. The social media didn't exist back then. Um, But so we have these young people now who are setting themselves up for really, um, a great deal of difficulty by um, by kind of pigeonholing themselves into these into these disordered identities that maybe like five years from now they're going to be like gosh I don't really want to be that but they've already kind of they're already kind of sunk into it in in a way the other thing that I thought was really was really poignant about Debor's piece was just um, and this picks up on a couple of things you've already said but you know something that he noted was that people in general are willing to acknowledge the existence of things like Munchausen syndrome, hypochondria, psychosomatic illness. They're willing to acknowledge all these kinds of things in the abstract. But we have developed this kind of, you know, speak your truth, your truth is your truth culture to such a high degree now that no one is really willing to grapple with that in the concrete. No one is really willing to sort of take somebody aside, take a young person aside, I mean, even parents with their children and sort of say, look, maybe so. Maybe this is what's going on, but hey, maybe not. Why don't we kind of like go down a different road for a while and see if maybe it isn't? Um, because it'll be a lot better in the long run if it isn't. Um, but we're just kind of afraid to do that now. So yeah, those are some of my thoughts about Freddie's article, which I thought was um, was really prescient and obviously touches on a lot of you know it's it's a touchy subject because you don't want to just call out people and just say, "Look, you're faking it." Um, but surely some people actually are, and it's not good as a society that that that's happening. And what does that say as a society that people sort of feel a sense of belonging and empowerment by doing that kind of a thing? It's it's, it's troubling. Yeah, I think uh, troubling is is probably the mild the mildest word I would come up with it come up with for this. Uh, terrifying might be a bit more apt because. Um, if you think about this as sort of, you know, the, the examples that Susie brings up, you know, something like, I think three, three or five women that she sort of explores their, their stories in any degree of depth. Um, that's a very small sample size, right? But extending to the community, there are hundreds, probably thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people who are exactly in this situation. And maybe it's not so dramatic as I think Morgan in the, in the, um, story, I think she ends up having a feeding tube you know, because of a sort of largely psychosomatic, uh, induced issue. Maybe for many people, it's not that bad, but what if we have, you know, 10 times the number of people who don't think it's that bad thinking that they still have something that's very limiting and they end up, you know, foregoing a childhood because they are convinced that they have that issue. They end up foregoing, you know, college applications. They end up foregoing dating and finding a spouse because of that. And they end up sort of just cutting off the the rest of their life because they're convinced that they they can't do it because they, they're convinced that they don't have enough spoons for that. You know, um, I think that's terrifying. Uh, and the I think this the 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 worst side of this 
is not just that a bunch of kids are sort of encouraging people, encouraging each other online and getting into trouble. The very worst side of this is that the medical community is absolutely failing them. Yeah. And I've been thinking about the the various failures of our medical system for quite a while now. Three weeks ago or so, Andrew, my wife and I go to the go to the University of Chicago Hospital in Hyde Park, the the big the big mothership of the hospital. This is situated, by the way, in Hyde Park, which is a fairly affluent area, but surrounded by very uh, low income areas. So this is a this is a hospital that that caters to and indeed prides itself on catering to low income population, largely black Chicagoans. Okay. We go there, um, we meet with, we have a, a, an ultrasound that takes about 10 minutes um, to see our new baby, which we're super excited about, obviously. We have a Congrats. maybe 15 minute ultrasound or 15 minute meeting with um, with uh, a midwife, right? Not even a doctor, a midwife. Uh, I don't mean that, uh, I, don't, I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. Oh, I mean no, that no. midwives billing rates are lower than doctor's rates, mm -hmm. right? So not a doctor's billing rate, so we saw a midwife for 15 minutes and I, I mean, I say it not pejoratively because I would rather have a midwife deliver our baby than a doctor. So mm -hmm. anyway, and then we had routine lab work. Now I say routine because my wife has no known risk categories, super healthy. The midwife even told us you are in the top 5% of patients that we see here. You're, you're super healthy. This is great. This is going to be a great pregnancy. I'm super excited for you. So those were the three things that we did in the hospital that caters to low income people. Okay. Now I should mention we're not low income people. We're not, we're not sort of the main demographic that the University of Chicago, University of Chicago serves. Uh, we have health insurance. Okay. There was a snafu with our health insurance though. And the billing department did not get our health insurance. So they thought we were uninsured. How much of a bill do you think they sent us? How big was the bill? Oh, Just man. based on, based on the, so, so routine blood work, 10 minute ultrasound, 15 minute meeting with midwife. How much do you think they charged us? Oh gosh. $5,000. That's almost exactly right. It was actually eight thousand three hundred dollars. Wow! And wow. they gave us they gave us a three thousand dollar self pay discount because we were paying by ourselves. They gave us a three thousand dollar discount, so over five thousand dollars. Now, wow! I'm not asking for for financial support because we got the insurance thing figured out. It was just like they didn't have our details, so we're not paying that. But I was just absolutely disgusted. I mean, shame on you, the University of Chicago, for trying to get away with that because I cannot imagine the the plight of a low-income person who goes there does not have health insurance and then they see that kind of a sticker shock for a blood test a 15-minute meeting with a nurse midwife and an ultrasound i mean absolutely insane so to me i mean that and that's just one one of the many many problems in the modern medical industry in america but but the medical industry is failing these people as well you're a young woman who has some of the symptoms that align with one of these sort of invisible illnesses and all your friends online have told you, you you have this you go to the doctor and the doctor says rather than rather than assuring you and saying look you don't need to worry about this try to live your life if this ends up being a problem we, you can always come back and talk to me but but i think you're fine yada 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 it's always better to just try to press forward and seize life by the horns and do what you can rather than uh, you know i think that would be a better thing than let me just run you through every single battery of tests that we possibly have, and we'll see if we can get to the bottom of this. Right? Yeah. Uh, this is like this is like patient-led medicine, which is uh, not a good not a good model in in, in this way, at least. Um, I, I think there are problems with the, the paternal model of medicine as well. But having the patient just dictate everything that the doctor does, even when it's against the patient's best interest, is not the right model. Yeah. Um, or you know, a more dramatic example: uh, a young child comes to the doctor, you know, eleven years old about to hit puberty and is like, hey, doctor, I think I'm a man, actually. And the doctor's like, well, if you think that, let me just delay your puberty. Let me just put you on, you know, testosterone or whatever. Um, horrible, horrible stuff. We are failing. Uh, we are failing people all across America, and we are especially failing our young people. And it is just it's it's horrible. Yeah. I mean, there's a million issues there with the with the medical side. I mean, one, the doctors are terrified of liability. You know, so of course, like if you're willing to keep going and go get more tests and, you know, pay more money and bill your insurance, whatever, they're like, great, go do it. I mean, that that's off my conscience then like go if you if you're not satisfied, if you if we want to just let's just keep exploring for as long as you want to, you know. Um, so there's that um, for sure. And then obviously you've already alluded to this, but I mean, there's just like huge financial incentive to I mean, th this is just a, a, a behemoth thing at this point that i mean it just has to keep churning i mean it just the the money just has to keep rolling in to justify you know there's a great old um sketch on monty python's flying circus 
Um, actually, it's not from Monty Python's Flying Circus, but it's a Monty Python sketch from one of their movies where, you know, they, they talk about the machine that goes ping. And, you know, like, that's really what it does, right? But like, everybody's got to got to go to the machine that goes ping, because you have to justify the cost of getting the machine that that goes ping. And I mean, that's what we got. That's what we've got, like many, many, many times over in, in yeah. the medical world and in hospitals nowadays, for sure. The third aspect that I just would draw out is and that both of the articles that we read today really highlight this, but, you know, well, let me back up one step and say, well, okay, so if you go to doctors, um, in the current system that we have, well, I mean, they know how to do, they know how to do what they're trained to do, which is to kind of, you know, check you out and probably prescribe you something. I mean, you know, that, that's, that's what they do. But one of the reasons that people are going to the doctors in the first place is that the internet has sort of become this sort of, you know, one of the, I forget which article it was, but I mean, you will find what you're looking for on the internet. Like if you're looking for someone on the internet that says, oh, you better go to the doctor, you're going to find it. And you're definitely going to find it in these communities that kind of reinforce each other's chronic illnesses, right? So you get all these people who maybe in earlier eras might've been treated in, in different ways or just kind of maybe maybe their own community or their family would have said, hey, look, you know what? I, I know, I kind of know the pain you're talking about. Let's just kind of wait on it. Let's Let's see, let's like, think about this together, whatever, you know, nowadays it's like, well, somebody on the internet said I really ought to go. So let's go. So it's just so many, so many things that are converging here to, to create this crisis. I wonder if there's a final aspect to this that we can sort of tie to a, a Christian anthropology. And that is that, uh, our young people are often convinced that the normal state of things is perfection. Yeah. Going back to the TikTok, Instagram stuff, they see celebrities and even their friends having seemingly perfect lives on Instagram because it's always the best foot forward. You never see the inner struggle of celebrities in there. You never see the doctor's visits they have, the chronic medical problems, et cetera. You just see them looking like perfect human beings all the time. And so um, we, I think, can often delude ourselves into thinking that the normal state of existence is actually perfection. The normal state of human existence, Andrew, as you well know, is brokenness, right? Uh, not just in a moral sense, although certainly, and perhaps most problematically that well, not, not even perhaps definitely most problematically our brokenness in the sin that we commit our moral brokenness, but also the, the, the effects of the fall extend to the entire natural world and, uh, our bodies are destined for mortality. Uh, yep. we're all, we're all born with a death sentence. We're all born with problems. None of us have perfect genes, um, because we're all going to die someday. Right. And so the normal state is that brokenness. And so. The, uh, the Christian anthropology, I think, is perhaps better equipped to be able to accept some of the limitations that we have, not seek to just remedy them uh, outright, not to not seek to get rid of them, but seek to be sanctified by them, uh, to to accept this and say, yes, Lord, uh, make me holy, rather than to go to the doctor and say, hey, doc, make me perfect, you know? Um, and I think uh, I think that's a big that's a big problem as well. We sort of are stuck in this. Um, we're stuck in this modern idea that to be healthy is to be perfect. Yeah. Um, in the human context, to be healthy is still to be broken because we're all dying someday. We just need to sort of be able to wrestle with our brokenness appropriately. For sure. But, you know, kind of perversely, um, I think it's people who think along the, the lines that you're articulating are people whose default mode is to say, um, is to think of wellness rather than sickness. Like, you yeah. know, one of the one of the common traits that came out in the, in, in the, especially in the Weiss article is that these are people who think of themselves as sick, right? Right. Um, and um, one more one more thing that I'll that I just wanted to mention uh, that just popped into my mind is I think this also relates back to something we discussed in a in an earlier conversation about um, about the final cause that you know that this is all kind of this is all related to not really even knowing why you're why you're on Earth why were you born what is your body for what is your you know what are you on Earth for. Um, when you kind of have a final cause in mind, of course, you want to be sure that you get yourself, you know, you get yourself healthy, checked out, take care of things, whatever it may be, right? But you're always thinking beyond that. You're always, and yeah. this is what you've already said, but I just thought I would sort of put a bow on it. No, it's that good. Yeah, final it's cause idea that I think is so is so lacking that creates people to just want to create a reality for themselves, even if it's in some strange way, like a reality born out of out of um, a, a, a perceived or real chronic illness. Could not agree with you more. I think that was very well said. I like to sometimes just sort of end these conversations with a practical note. And I think the practical note here is get off your phones. Uh, 
right? I mean, yep. so much of this is just fueled by the internet. Go get outside, go walk outside, go get some fresh air, do something, do something social with people. And I don't mean social network. I don't mean social media. I mean, actually go into the same room, into the same restaurant, the same concert venue, whatever, like go, go do things, um, yep. go be with people in person. I uh, kind of cheekily said the other day, although it's really not a joke, that um, China is putting on a masterclass in how to sort of destroy the social fabric of its uh, social fabric of its closest geopolitical competitor, because it has uh, it has in all likelihood accidentally released or you know or intentionally, but I think accidentally released a virus from a a, a virus research lab. It has uh, exported untold quantities of fentanyl. Uh, outside of its borders, especially to the U.S., where it is just uh, causing a massacre, especially in uh, the middle part of America. And it has made TikTok the most viral app known to man that is responsible for so much of the confusion and disorientation of our young people today. Uh, it's really, really bad stuff. And I'm not even saying that uh, that this is like all malicious on China's part. I think obviously like the I don't think the TikTok creators are like, let's destroy America. Um, I think this is sort of like just, you know, uh, sort of late stage modernity uh, sort of playing itself out. But it's bad nonetheless. I mean, the fact that um, the fact that China, the Chinese state has instituted screen time, feder you know, federated screen time bans across China for its young people shows that it knows very well the danger of the screen time. Oh, yes. Now, I'm not arguing for that kind of solution in America, but parents need to do it. Come on, parents, step up, get your kids off the phone, uh, get them outside, give them a childhood. Um, so yeah, this is this is just terrifying stuff, and I'm glad that people like Susie and Freddie DeBoer are writing about it, um, and we need more people speaking up on these types of matters. I agree. All right, well, it is time for the recommendation section. Andrew, what are you recommending this week? All right, well, I am recommending a piece from the American Conservative from September 24th called Love in the Afternoon at 50 by Casey Chalk, who I believe is a friend of the podcast. Um, Casey writes about Eric Romare's great film, uh, Love in the Afternoon, which is the sixth film in his six moral tales series that he told in the 60s and into the early 70s. Love in the Afternoon is just a just a brilliant, a brilliant movie. And I just want to read one thing that Casey writes about it. Um, he says, 50 years removed from one of Romare's cinematic triumphs, the challenge for men and women is still very much the same. Will we choose the oft-scorned norms of monogamous relationships and parenthood or the transient path of self-realization? So that speaks somewhat to the, the conversation we've already been having. Romare Absolutely. shows this over and over again in his movies. He puts characters in these situations that present difficult moral circumstances, and he almost sort of dares them to choose well. And we see in a whole lot of his movies that they do even when they don't have deep religious commitments. And Love in the Afternoon is one of these. It's, it's, a, it's a classic kind of European art house movie. It won't be for everyone's taste, but I love it. And I really love that Casey celebrated its 50th anniversary. I love it. Yeah, I've not seen the movie, but uh, I'm going to, um, especially with that recommendation. And yes, you're right. Casey is a good friend of the show. He's supposed to be coming back on in the next couple of weeks. So um, listeners will, I think, hear him again soon. In fact, maybe we'll just bring him on for one of these, Andrew. That's a good That'd idea. That'd be great. Um, I, will, uh, I will ask him. My recommendation is a little sneak preview of an upcoming episode on this very podcast feed. This is called From the Susquehanna to the Tiber, a memoir of conversion from Mormonism to the Roman Catholic Church by Jeremy Christensen. So the Susquehanna is a reference to the birth of Mormonism in America and the Tiber, obviously the Tiber River in Rome. So Jeremy is a convert to Catholicism from Mormonism, and this is his memoir. I interviewed him um for the podcast and that is going live on monday morning um if you want to watch it on youtube it'll be at 10 a.m eastern 7 a.m pacific premiering um and it'll go up on uh, on the podcast feeds you know roughly the same time so um that's my recommendation for the week go buy his book uh you can find a link to buy it in the show notes of this episode um and yeah that's it that's all i've got this week any final final closing comments andrew Nothing for me. I'm eager to read Jeremy's book as well. I've had a lot of interactions with him on Twitter over the last couple of years, and I think he's a, a really interesting guy. So can, I can't wait to hear your conversation and also to pick up his book. Yeah, I really enjoy talking with him. It's it's uh, it's always so fun to just uh, talk with converts and hear their stories. Uh, always unique and always compelling. So, all right. Well, thanks so much for listening to another episode of What a Week. Really enjoyed this conversation today, Andrew. Uh, if any of the listeners 
out there or viewers have comments, go ahead and throw a comment on the YouTube there. Go ahead and subscribe if you're listening on podcast uh, rates uh, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. That would be great. Much appreciated. I have not done a rate and subscribe drive for a couple of years, I think. So go ahead and do that if you don't mind, um, if you have not already. And we'll be back next week. If you have a comment for us directly, in the meantime, you can go ahead and send me a note, Zach, Z-A-C at creedlepodcast.com, and we'll discuss it next time. All right. Until next time, God bless you.